Welcome to Conversations in Grief, a podcast from Anamkara, an organization set up by bereaved parents to help themselves and all bereaved parents cope with their grief and loss and journey on. I'm Sam Whelan Curtin, and in this second season of the podcast series, we'll be hearing from parents as they share their own unique stories of their children and their journey through grief. In this episode, we will be talking about the experience of the sudden loss of a child while abroad with Fiona as she speaks to us about her son, Daniel. Fiona, thank you for joining us. Can you introduce yourself and your family for us? Well, I'm Fiona Farrell and um, I'm married to John and we have Sophie, who is 19 now, and um, Matthew, who is almost 14. So Daniel came in the middle of the two of them and he, if he had lived, would be 16 now. And can you tell me a little bit about Daniel, his character, his personality? I hear he had a legendary smile. Yeah, he he was 11 days late when he was born. I had I grew up in a house of all girls. So and I'd had a, a girl first. So when they handed me this little boy, I was going, oh, my God, what do I do? Um, but he, he was actually a very easy baby. He was very, very smiley, like big kind of fat cheeks and huge big brown eyes. Like he had these amazing big brown eyes. So we were just besotted, you know, it kind of you kind of think it doesn't get any better. Sophie would have been about just three and a half, I think, at the time. So, yeah, there's kind of a nice gap between them. And she really loved her little brother um, and played with him all the time. And he had this little Mickey Mouse football that he had and he would, you know, throw that around the place. Also mad about dogs. So at the time we had this golden retriever called Inish and um, he used to actually Daniel used to pull himself up on the back of Inish to learn how to walk. He was just the two of them. They were like little soulmates, actually. They were just he, he could do anything to Inish and it would not upset her. So, yeah, lovely bond, really lovely bond. I think his first word might have even been dog. That sounds like a special connection. And you describe Daniel so vividly. Fiona, can I ask you to share with us about losing Daniel? He was, had just celebrated his first birthday. Um, and we got on a magnificent holiday to Euro Disney, which John had organised as our Christmas present. And I thought was ridiculous because Daniel was so young, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't get it. So that was, I think, April we went over to Euro Disney. He just loved all the rides and um, we just spent lots of time together as a family. So that was really special. And when we came back, then I had booked a holiday in June. We went to Menorca in Spain and um, we were meeting with friends over there. And when we got there, this place was just fantastic, made for children. You know, they had all those kids clubs and um, Sophie just was in her element, you know, taking part in the, the little performances, you know, the, and discos every night. And it was just made for children. One of the, I think it was about the fourth night, he, he just wasn't himself. You know, he was crying when I was, put, you know, trying to get him dressed or just out of sorts. So um, I said, to John, I think we should bring him to the doctor. So we went down to the the holiday doctor, they call him, um, and they examined him. And 
basically given a lollipop and sent off to get um, antibiotics for him. And that evening we went to a restaurant and um, he seemed fine once I gave him the antibiotics. And we went back to the apartment and I got him ready for bed. And at about four o'clock in the morning, um, I don't know what woke me up. I, it was actually very shortly after Madeleine McCann had gone missing and I was a bit paranoid about somebody breaking into the apartment. So anyway, I went out to check on Sophie really. And I just noticed that Daniel, because the two of them were in the same room together, he wasn't moving. So I just went over and I put my hand on him and I couldn't feel his heart or anything. Um, and it just, I just remember panic, absolute panic. And I lifted him up and ran in and shouted at John. I said, Daniel's not breathing. I went down to, ran down to the reception and they phoned the doctor. And I then our friends had actually just come in and they said no an ambulance get an ambulance now and my friend who had basically worked in hospitals tried to resuscitate him but he wasn't breathing um yeah it just I don't know just the times felt like ages and this ambulance arrived and he got put in the back of an ambulance and they worked on him for a period of time and we were standing outside just going what the hell is going on this is just mad and then actually the doctor who had checked him that evening was there and uh, and then they, they came out and they said he was dead it's just I can't even tell you the disbelief of somebody saying that to you when he was perfectly fine when we put him to bed yeah so it was just shock because I, I think he hadn't shown any signs of an illness so it was very much a sudden death and on your holidays in Spain, in this heat, in, in hotels, surrounded by all these holiday makers, it was just like a nightmare. So our friends that evening took Sophie and they moved us out of the room that we had been in, just myself and John. But of course, we didn't we didn't sleep that night. And then the next morning, I suppose it started to go. Did that really happen? Was that just a bad dream? Um, and then the next day was just all these people around and police and, you know, the consular people came down to meet us as well. And they advised, everybody advised that we should just go home for for Sophie's sake as quickly as possible. It was the worst advice we could have been given. But at the time, you actually don't know your own mind. It's like you're outside yourself and you're watching people sh- telling you what to do. But... You don't actually, it's like you've lost the power to speak. So, yeah, that that was, we, we flew home like we Daniel's buggy, but no Daniel. Just total disbelief. So when we got into the airport then, for the, for the next week or so, it's still, I kept on thinking that somebody was going to pull up outside and go, we've made an awful mistake and actually Daniel's fine. But needless to say, we didn't sleep. Like we just couldn't understand. We were being told that he had died from pneumonia and I just couldn't accept that. And then when we tried to investigate it further, we were told that maybe it was a cot death. But he was too big, like he was 15 months old. He was walking, he was burly. You know, he was a big, healthy child. There's, I just didn't believe that it was a cot death. From that, um, we contacted Crumlin Hospital and explained to them that this had happened and that, you know, it was completely out of the blue. 
So they requested, uh, obviously Daniel's body was due home from Spain. We had to organise that again, which was horrendous. And John had to go in to get a death certificate for him. And where you get your death certificate is beside where you get your birth certificate. So there's all these new parents waiting for their new baby and you're waiting for your son's death certificate in the same room. We got in touch with Crumlin and they said they'd do another post-mortem on him when he came back, which isn't a nice thought on your beautiful little baby. But what they discovered is that Daniel's heart was quite swollen. So they sent it off to some specialist in London and they came back and said he had this hypotropic cardiomyopathy, which I had never heard of. They were very kind in Crumlin, to be fair to them. Um, and the cardiologist in there, he went into detail to say that um, the only way that they would have picked up on it is through a echo and that babies don't get that echo. So um, he said that Daniel wouldn't have had a great life, that they would have, he would have had to have a heart transplant and, you know, a lot. Sometimes they're rejected. So, I, you know, they were they were kind and they took the time to explain everything to us. The experience you describe is harrowing and so much to bear as a parent. Can you talk to us about how you dealt with all that? We did seek out, I sought out things that would make things a bit easier for Sophie particularly, but also for John and I, because it does cause a rift, you know, because grief is, is incredibly different. Like I just want just to hide away. And, you know, John was being practical and getting back to work, which we had to, you know. So anyway, I ended up giving up my job and just looking after Sophie, focusing on her totally. And she was so adorable at the time because she used to hug me all the time saying, well, you still have me. But I'm sure like she was kind of going, what have they done with Daniel? Because she was so young. And also the quietness of the house. That was really difficult because it was so noisy when there was the two of them there. I think for, for new parents, as, you know, for parents that this has happened to, even things like going into their bedroom and looking in their wardrobe and all the clothes that you've bought them and, you know, remembering the times that they've worn those clothes. Do you keep the stuff? Do you get rid of the stuff? How do you box up somebody's life? And then there's other people like me who felt that isn't healthy for me to, to go in and to to have all his his things you know the nappies and so two of my friends came one day and um basically they had just had baby boys and they I said I'd want you to use this stuff I don't want it just lying here idle so but that was really painful like you know going through his wardrobe and, and giving his things away and you were telling me before that you'd only just got his passport I believe he got his passport his first passport so um, like that, that's a big deal, you know, when you get when you get your child's passport. So we still have that at home. But, you know, I suppose in comparison to Sophie and now Matthew, you can put the three passports, you know, that she got when she was a baby, then when she was like nine or ten and one now. And you, you see how they change over the years. And we have that now for Matthew as well, like from when he was like three or four. And then, you know, the most recent one, he's nearly 14, whereas you don't have that, you know, and the, all the photographs are changing around your home. But yet you still have this baby picture of Daniel, which is beautiful, of course. But but yeah, it's nearly like that time is just frozen. 
Tell me, Fiona, what was helpful for you in coping? At that point, it really is just coping, isn't it? Getting out of bed every morning is a struggle, you know, and um, like Sophie was the reason that, you know, you you had to get out of bed. You had to try and normalise what had happened. Um, and then I knew as well, my family, my mum, my sisters were very worried about me um, and my friends. So you kind of have to shake yourself and just say this has happened and nothing you're going to do is going to bring them back. Yeah, like, you know, bringing Sophie, she was starting primary school and we'd actually put Daniel's name down for that school. But, you know, I, I remember that day bringing her in into junior infants for the first time and you meet all these new people who know nothing about you. And everyone's like, oh, what's so-and-so's name? And, you know, it's all, I suppose, just acquaintances. And the question you are guaranteed to be asked is, have you, you know, how many other children do you have? And I just, I just started running from the school gates. I couldn't, you know, every time I knew that somebody was going to ask me that, I couldn't hold it together. Like Daniel Dunny died in June. And this was September. And, you know, everybody seemed to have new babies and buggies. And I know it wasn't their fault, but that this had happened to us. But it just was n- not how I had seen my life unfolding. So I, I just, I find it really difficult to to cope with that every day, bringing her to school. But I did it because you have to do it. Other coping skills, I suppose, is like walking in nature. I did go for huge, big walks. And I, Daniel and I when, would have gone for walks together when he was in his buggy with the dog. So, you know, I did, I continued to do that. But you always feel like your arms and your hands are empty because they're not there, you know, in passing the playground where you would have put them on a swing or on a seesaw, you know. So I was going to all the same places, but I couldn't do the stuff that I would have done, obviously, when he was with me. So, yeah, that, that's where I suppose reaching out to other bereaved parents was a great support because they totally got it. And just, you know, I, I would have learned from them. And, you know, I kind of, they were a couple of years down, further down the road. And I was kind of thinking, God, I'm not always going to be like this. You know, there's hope for me yet, you know. And also we did other things like we got involved with Barrettstown. We attended a bereavement camp down there and, you know, lots of other families who were all in the same horrible situation as we were. And you kind of felt safe with them. Because it didn't matter if you suddenly started crying, you were people weren't going to look at you funny or think that you were some kind of freak. So it just made sense in Barrettstown, or it made sense when you met the women from Anamkara. You know, if you if you go looking for stuff, that will help. And also, we did a lot a huge amount of fundraising. So <clears throat> you know, we raised money for um did the mini marathon. We some friend of John's climbed Kilimanjaro and did the Cork Marathon and I don't know it was people just who'd heard Daniel's story who decided to go and and raise money in his memory which was very touching for us so that was that was all positive and John then organised to do Christmas cards called um, the 12 Days of Christmas and there were Daniel's heart and again we raised more money so all those things I think connecting with people who had similar stories you know 
doing the charity stuff. Then a friend of mine who's an artist um, built a or designed this magnificent Daniel Sandcastle, as we call it. And it's up in the Sunshine Home or Laurel Inn up in Leopardstown. So that's there forever in memory of him. And it's it as I suppose it's like a portrayal of what a lovely, upbeat, happy child he was, because the best holiday we ever had with him was in Kerry on the beach in Kerry when he was only was he three months old. So we've all those lovely memories of him. So we packed a lot into his 15 months, you know, and sometimes you kind of think, God, you were lucky to have him for that period of time. But you just wanted more. <laughs> I'm sorry, Fiona. I'm sorry you couldn't have more of that time. There's a journey in grief, as you've been describing to us. How does it change as time goes on? Beginning, it's so raw and um, the void is so huge because obviously somebody who's 15 months old just demands all your attention. So, you know, for suddenly for them to be gone, what am I going to do now? <laughs> um, but for his first anniversary I ended up finding out I was pregnant on Matthew um, and that brought a whole load of mixed emotions as well um, which again talking to other mothers in Anamkara who had gone on to have subsequent children they all said the same you kind of have this feeling of oh my god people are going to think you know you're trying to whatever but it it isn't that case at all like we would have always had a third child but thank god that Matthew did come along because you know he definitely brings a lot of love into our house and you know even though he never got to meet Daniel he certainly I think is happy to talk about him but it must be weird for him as well you know because when he goes to see just our secondary school and people will be saying oh you know do you have any siblings and you know he I know he doesn't mention um, Daniel whereas Sophie would have more because she remembers him so that's even kind of difficult for the siblings I think as the years went by I suppose doing the the fair every Christmas in memory of Daniel that was brilliant because it, you want the memory to be kept alive and I found <clears throat> even though it was an emotional day it was a happy day and I think that really kind of captured how we want him to be remembered and going through the years, then I suppose you have to kind of get back to normality. So, you know, I got my first kind of job back after I was minding my sister's children for a number of years. But, you know, that couldn't go on forever. They were getting bigger. So I ended up getting a job working in mornings and it meant I could still collect Sophie and Matthew from school and everything. And that was good. It was good getting out and, you know, participating in the working world again and I kind of eased myself back back into it um, before getting a full-time job which was a real shock to the system after being out for a number of years. Getting the full-time job I found that challenging because people again would say how many children do you have and I'd kind of go god do they will I say it what they end up making you end up sometimes people feel that they, it, it just kind of shuts down a conversation because they feel awkward and then you're kind of like oh why did I say it I shouldn't have said it so but then you feel bad because you know he is your son and you should say that you have three children as opposed to saying that you have two children so there's always that thing and I still have that now and it's how many years later 
you know, I've just started a new job and I'm working with lovely people, but I still don't feel brave enough to say that I had a son who died. Why is that? I don't know. It's a hard question to answer. And one I know that comes up for a lot of parents. Can you tell us more about how you navigated the grief? I've kind of learned what is a trigger and what will make me upset and how to avoid it. So, for example, Daniel's birthday is the 21st of March and I will never work that day ever um, because I just know it's too, I, I, I feel I should be celebrating his birthday and that I've been robbed of that. So therefore, I'm not going into work. Um, so I always take it as an annual leave day and we go down, we planted a tree for him in Paris Court beside the waterfall. So we go down and visit that um, on his birthday and then we go for this big walk and um, we go back to this friend of ours house and we have a big lunch and it turns into a, a lovely day. And I often think God, Daniel would have loved that, actually. You know, he would love to think that his birthday connects people. So <clears throat> that's how he spent his birthday. And then his anniversary is the 14th of June. And again, I always take that off as well because I could not be in work that day. It's just too upsetting. So I think what would be great is for, I suppose, employers to appreciate that. But I know it's 12, 13 years ago since it happened, but... It's still, you know, the, the birthdays, the anniversaries, there's still hard days to get through, regardless how many years later it is. And all these years later, how do you connect to Daniel's memory? The connection, and I'm glad you asked that actually, is I love when people tell me stories of things that he did that I don't know. Because his life was so short, you know, we only had him for 15 months, that, you know, if my friend says, oh, God, do you remember the time for his christening? And, you know, I had to give him his bottle or something or, you know, just stuff that I don't know or I don't remember. Because as the years go by, a lot of the memories are fading. And I'd, I'd love people to realise that by sharing their memories of your child, they're actually keeping his memory alive. So my sister will tell me another one of Oh, the house that they used to live in they had a little playhouse at the back and she has well she had two girls at the time but um, he used to hide in the little playhouse and his head would come out the little window whatever you know just stories like that that I know that other people you know have nice memories of him and have a connection with him so that that's how you keep his memory alive and how you keep that connection alive just sharing stories you know, that that's that's what it comes down to. My mum is brilliant, actually, because she has his picture everywhere in her house, you know, and she said, he's my grandson. She said, he's up there with everybody else because he's as important to me as the rest of them. So she doesn't downweight his importance because he's not here anymore. Um, so I love that, you know, to see his big, lovely, happy face all over the place. Those photos sound like they're filled with a lot of joy. Thinking about the parents listening to this, particularly parents who have recently lost a child, what message would you like them to take away from listening to yours and Daniel's story? I'd say, you know, try and find ways to, it's never going to be better, you know, so just find find coping ways um, and reach out to people, you know, because 
it's so true. If you do talk to people, it does heal. It does help you heal a bit. Um, as I said, it's never going to eradicate the, the pain and the heartbreak. But I think by sharing your stories with other parents who've lost a child, you know, be it fathers, mothers, you know, I think it does help. Definitely. Um, you know, John, even who thought it wasn't going to help him, I think meeting the other fathers at the bereavement camp and, you know, just talking to other parents, definitely um, I saw an improvement in both of us as a result of that. So I just say keep keep be open to everything. Anything that helps in any small way has to be of benefit. Anything that can make the pain slightly less has got to be of benefit. And I also think if you have surviving children, it's very important for that for you, you know, to to show them resilience and, and trying to, I suppose, make the best of your life regardless of this, you know, and there's loads of people out there who give gave me inspiration. All the people that I met in those early days, surround yourself with, with people like that. And, you know, there's always going to be somebody who says something that offends you or is insensitive. But, you know, you just have to try and focus on on the support of people. And, you know, there are there are loads of them around. And try and like for the birthdays and anniversaries, I think having something planned for that day, that's the biggest thing I would say is those days are so difficult that if you just do nothing that day, it makes it actually feel horrible. Whereas, you know, getting out and actually marking that child's birthday or their anniversary in a positive upbeat way you know going down nice big walk in the hills of Wicklow or so um just doing stuff like that I think just to like you're still alive I just think they'd want you to be happy thank you Fiona for sharing your experience and for telling us about Daniel and his beautiful life we dedicate this episode to his memory we know the power of hearing the stories of other parents and how this can help in navigating the journey of grief. Anamkara provides information, resources and bereavement support after the death of a child of any age and through all circumstances. They hold regular group meetings and information sessions in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. You can find out more by visiting www anamkara.ie or calling plus 353-1-404-5378. We would like to thank all the parents who have spoken to us and shared their stories for this podcast series. Thank you for listening and be kind to yourself. <laughs>